0: may not be familiar with his name, but Phil Kinsey's contributions to the world of music are many, and in some cases, iconic. Phil has performed and recorded with some of the most well-known artists in the history of rock, such as Al Stewart, Rod Stewart, Kenny Loggins, David Bowie, The Eagles, Stevie Nicks, Carla Bonoff, Jackson Brown, the soundtrack for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and even The Beatles. On today's episode of Inside Music Cast... We chat with Phil about his start in the business and his rise to become a first-call sax player. We also discuss his connection to George Harrison and the Beatles, his incredible story about a 1937 Selmer alto sax he used on his iconic solo on Al Stewart's Year of the Cat, and how Rod Stewart stole him away from Al Stewart. Inside Music Cast welcomes the incredibly talented Phil Kinsey. Hey, Phil, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah.
0: And uh, before we get started today, Phil, I wanted to uh, give special thanks to Kim Riley, one of our correspondents here at Inside Music Cast. And she's also, she has a company called Seaside Music Management and Offshore Talent. And she was responsible for uh, setting us up with you today, Phil. So thanks to Kim for that. And uh, so, Phil, to get started i 'm um, just curious you know you 've been in the business for you know a long long time, and I, I just wondered how old you were when you when you uh, started playing saxophone and, and tell me why tell me why you decided to, to pick up the instrument in the first place
1: Well, um, as a teenager, I actually naturally started out with rock and roll and I started out with guitar in fact, very early on, I actually started out with harmonica uh-huh. and I was playing with a folk group that was kind of um, uh, I think the uh, on this side, is called the Weavers, uh, was, uh, what's it, Pete Seeger, is it? Yeah. I don't remember, I'm not very up on the Pope thing, but anyway, there was an equivalent group in, in England that called themselves the Spinners.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And with Lofty Davis was one of the, well, he first was one of the first ones to ask me to play harmonica when there was a very young guy, I was probably about 14 or 15 at that time, and I actually played the Cavern Club with them one night and was very... Surprised to see a gentleman in a very smart looking shiny suit get on the stage, mm-hmm. and real suddenly realized this was uh, one of the radio heroes of the time, Lonnie Donegan
2: wow,
3: interesting
1: and he was uh, the originate well one of the major stars to come out of what was the skiffle boom in England, which was kind of a folk based thing that uh, a lot of people were doing, and then he in fact sang. Uh, a lot of songs concerned with the area I surprisingly now live in, namely the uh, Cumberland Gap, and the, which because I'm in Tennessee, which is right by the Cumberland Gap. Right, right, right. Sure. And and also the Rock Island Line, which were two of his biggest hits, actually. Look at the two songs that. called the Cumberland Gap and the Rock Island Line.
3: Yeah, isn't it interesting what's happening with this—the resurgence of the of the folk hunger, and you know, uh, even from the Brit perspective, you know, all the all the all the folk music that's just resurgence. And and the, the, the love of it again, isn't it interesting?
1: I never knew whether it really went away. The folk seemed to be a thing that was always there mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. Whether it was uh, the current favorite to be, you know, buying it or, or applauding it was right. one thing. But it seemed to always have its fans, mm-hmm. you know. mm mm-hmm. I mean, Al Stewart, obviously, was one of those kind of people. You know, it was what I call the uh, sit-on-the-stool yeah. brigade with an acoustic. You know, right.
3: <laughs> you know we asked him one time, and the last time we chatted with Al, I think uh, Rick or I asked him, you know, uh, you know, how many guitars do you own? Some Some musicians really have a lot of guitars. He says... I've only had one for years. I only own one. (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
1: Oh, well, I don't know whether that's particularly true. (laughs) (laughs) Al Al is a great one for making himself appear eccentric. (laughs) Yeah. He's actually less eccentric than he appears. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he actually has, I mean, I know he has one or two guitars, maybe three. I know at the time, for example, when I played with him, I know he had an ovation and he was playing things like that, but when he came to on stage, I think you'll see from the pictures he was actually playing a a, a Fender Telecaster hollow body. Oh yeah, okay,
3: okay. all yeah. right, and thanks for you setting know. this
2: straight. Yeah.
1: And then when I saw him <laughs> this time, he was playing. He was playing um, uh, um, Taylor,
0: right? Taylor. Okay. Uh, he was
1: playing a Taylor. Yep. Last time, and so uh, you know. I'm sure he's had a few guitars in his lifetime, not just one.
0: Well, now, now Eddie and I are disappointed. We're going to have to cut that part out of the podcast now.
1: <laughs> oh, well, Al, Al tells an awful lot of stories. Of he does it just to create rumors. You know? but, well, you, you know, know, he's he's a great one for storytelling. And in fact, <laughs> right. there is a great story about the first record about him, which uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, we're kind of skipping forward a little in my career from the that's, the early days of that's this. Okay. Cavern, that's okay. That's fine. I late, uh, you know. Um, ended up with um, guitar, and and indeed my sister's boyfriend at the time was a jazz critic for the Liverpool Echo, which was the, the local newspaper. Yeah, and he um, introduced me to a lot of jazz records and what have you via my sister, and who was two years older than me, and. Um, he bought me guitar books and things like that, and I studied them a little while, but what really excited me was listening to um, some of the big bands and some of the roaring antenna players and saxophone players that I heard. And so that converted me to wanting to play the saxophone, really, right there. I see. And that was kind of my earliest influences. I was probably listening to more jazz at that period, you uh-huh. know, people like the big bands, Stan Kenton bands, and, uh, oh, sure. uh, 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 and of course, we were very lucky in England. We had... Uh, And Norman Grant's over there who would put on uh, Jazz at the Philharmonic. And I got to see some of the greats of our day, you know, uh, for relatively cheap ticket prices. You know, we would go, um, you know, we'd get student prices and things. And I got to see, you know, Count Basie with Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, Sarah Vaughan singing with uh, uh, Duke Ellington. Uh And we saw the four freshmen and all, all live, you know. Yeah. So, and, and occasionally they would do a whole series of putting like a rhythm section together at the back that have Ray Brown on bass, Louis Belson on drums, and Bill Evans on piano. And then they would bring out a series of horn players, including Stan Getz and, uh, you know, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, the oh, I'm
1: trying to think of more, you know, Roy Eldridge on trumpet and Coleman wow. Hawkins I saw in his day and then people like that, all these American greats, you see, so. We had a lot of good influences.
0: Sounds like an all-star lineup that we.
1: Did. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we, saw, you know, and then out, at the end they'd bring out Dizzy Gillespie and people like that, you know. <laughs> wow. It was a great evening, you know. I mean, you watch that. It was. All, <laughs> I later found out it was almost like you know when when a lot of them had um, were uh, went to um, uh, rehab. They had like a prison system place where they went, and um, you know a lot of the jazz greats who had drug problems. And um, they would put on a hell of a Saturday night.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, they have big bands in there. You know, all the guys, all the jazz guys are in there. And yeah, they, absolutely. I, I think there's even recordings of them, you know, mm-hmm. when, it's like, you know, jazz from the jail, as it were, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, <laughs> Well, you were also in a band called The Pressmen, right? And, and uh,
1: Exactly, were, yeah.
0: Were, I guess, you know, you played in a, a lot of the same clubs, like like the Cavern Club, you know, places where the Beatles played, and I think you even shared Billings with them, is that right? We
1: actually did, yeah. We used to literally, the Cavern Club was uh, built in like, um, shape-wise, it was built in the old-fashioned way of like tunnel arches, right, you know, yeah, yeah. going down. And, and so there were like three corridors leading down to the stage, the stage being in the middle of a central arch, And then to the left side of the stage, it was like a a wooden, uh, blocked-off area, which was essentially meant to be the dressing room, although Uh. the dressing room was really very much high praise for it. It was more like a box that you were in. And there was, of course, an arch going onto the stage, so you had to climb up and onto the stage from this dressing room, and everybody entered that way and climbed on the stage that way, so they used to cart amplifiers with them through the crowd and down to the little side door there and then, (laughs) you know, trans them and there was no back line or anything. Everybody had to bring their own amps. So you're busy struggling onto the stage while well, they were struggling off the stage, you know <laughs> yeah. through, through the same hole. You know?
4: Excuse me, pardon <laughs> and, uh, me, excuse me. So
1: we're, they and they went on stage when we played with them, they were wearing black polar neck sweaters which are right up to the chin. Yeah. Included with black leather um you know you see some of the ones and shots of them in Germany wearing the same stuff, you know. In right, yeah, right. the black leather pants and the black leather motorcycle jackets. Can you imagine being in that in like a hundred and ten degrees and no <laughs> air conditioning?
0: Oh my gosh. You
1: talk about sweating. Yeah. <laughs> They, yeah. were dri- they were dripping, and they would come off the stage, and we'd literally be dripping on each other. Right. No
0: wonder those guys were so skinny. No doubt. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. We, we would literally be dripping on each other coming in and out, so I can yeah. say that Paul McCartney sweated on me once. You
3: know? <laughs> <laughs> me and Rick actually and, uh, have, uh, we have black turtlenecks and leather jackets on, on every interview that we do.
1: So, <laughs>
2: we enjoy that, you know.
1: <laughs> and the other thing, of course, you know, you see, we was from Wallasey, so there was kind of a surly look of, like, well, they were from Liverpool, which is basically just either side of the River Mersey. Yeah, yeah. And uh, once we were walking uptown, we had a very good guitar player called Richie Prescott. Mm-hmm. who made it his business not only to build his own guitars, rather, you know, he, in fact, he, he had uh, one that was built out of a piece of wood and used to be referred to as the swinging orange box. You know, because <laughs> 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 he, he made it out of an orange box. Wow. <laughs> and, um, but uh, basically, he had knobs all over the thing and about five or six pickups on it. All yeah. apparently were all wired, so there were only one pickup. But nevertheless, he used to play this and get the all the sounds of, you know... Um, Chuck Berry and all of those things that were the heroes of, of, of most of the Liverpool groups. Yeah. So we were we were sort of vaunted in a way a little bit, the fact that we had a sax player and the fact we had, um, you know, this great guitar player. So they would look at us across the road and go, Hello, press man. <laughs> 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 We'd sort of go, Hello, Beatles. <laughs> 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 you know, that kind of, that Hello, kind of attitude. attitude you know. Oh, that's uh, And, um so we would go on stage and of course they were getting much more acclaimed because they were they were just uh, more a wilder group in the yeah. we were a little more um mid mid-range sort of R&B to pop mm-hmm. and they were very much wilder they did you know a lot in their day um, however, once they became famous, of course They became very pop very early on Sure, yeah. quite a change from what they'd been on the cabin.
3: Yeah, well tell us a little bit about it. I mean, while we're on the subject of the Beatles You know, uh, tell us about your, your notable playing And your work with, on the song, actually That you um, helped them with, Let It Be What was your connection with them And how did this get going?
1: Well, it's... Started with, do you remember a, a, a black artist from New York, originally family from Barbados, I believe, who was uh, Doris Troy? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Doris Troy had hits in America that will later um, gave big hits to the Hollies. Okay,
2: Yeah, uh, gotcha.
1: she she had just one look, and what you got to do about it, and things like that. Uh, in fact, even relatively a few years ago, the phone company was still using just one look about that, and she was. Still making money then she sadly departed now and she ended up with the uh, breathing you know emphysema type situation in in uh, las vegas which was her final place where she lived okay. but uh, she was the one very very strong personality as she put it i would bogart my way in there <laughs> 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 that's how she put it you know and so uh, there were some stories of her uh, you know literally bogarting her way with agents and and uh, you know, getting herself paid by really muscling her way, <laughs> practically mm-hmm. beating the agent up, you know, yeah. um, who was trying to steal her money. And uh, But she um, was very good at networking and managed to uh, get herself, you know, uh, through using her connections and her fame at the time, to get herself into Apple. Okay,
2: and uh, okay. she called
1: me one day and said, "Yo, come on, we'll go down to Apple. So I went down to Apple. Uh-huh. And in fact, uh, there was Jackie Lomax of The Undertakers, of course, another what I call Wallasey Group,
2: uh-huh.
1: and uh, he was about to have an album done, so he was looking to me to put some horns on that. Okay. And naturally, it graduated from that. His big friend at the time uh, was George Harrison, okay. whom Doris was um, busy bullying into making his album. <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's why,
1: Because, uh, believe me, George was so shy and so, um, how shall I say, subservient to okay. the other powers in the Beatles, uh-huh. that he really didn't have the confidence to know who he was and how much influence he had.
4: <laughs> I see.
1: It, it didn't occur to him. All he felt like was that he'd, he'd come out of school, been a guitarist in a band, they got famous, and now the band was finished, and he was an out-of-work guitar player. Wow, <laughs> jeez. He, he didn't realize that, you know, what was going to happen. There he was. And indeed, he was spending money doing the album in those days he was spending a fortune doing the album and we i mean there were hours and hours in the studio where we would be i would be asked to bring a brass section i remember one day distinctly with we emi abbey road uh-huh. and i had about an eight-piece brass section there and i was the leader supposedly and because um, i booked them although in those days they had a, a fixer who was part of emi records called Laurie gold who actually sat upstairs in uh, EMI Abbey Road, and every session had to go through him, whether he booked it or not. You know, it was one of those. So even though I was actually the booker, he was the one I got credit and the 10% for it. I I see, I see. You know how that works. Anyway, um, but EMI in those days was very much um, a strange studio because they had all their offices and all their thing upstairs. Um, At the end of each three-hour session, you had to line up on the wall, and they would come down with a big round brown wooden box with little manila envelopes in it, and in each one, they would have the amount for the session, which in those days, I think, was not a great deal of money. It doesn't sound a great deal today, but it was, relative to the time, it was a good deal of money. It was like 15 pounds or something like that in money. And um, each day, you would have to sign every three hours for the money. Well, we sat there from, I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning to so 9 o'clock at night before we paid and played a note. And and we were collecting 15 pounds every three hours <laughs> and spending the rest of the time down in the canteen, you know, on the bottom, on the basement. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or in the pub next door. And yeah. by the time we finished, we thought, my God, this album's going to cost a fortune. We, <laughs> yeah. worked, we worked out that, the, well, with all this money and all this thing, and, and, and while we were there, they, he had about 30 string players in there all day while we were, you know, hanging around waiting to do the brass bits. I you see. Know? Yeah. And um, I thought I thought this album's going to cost about fifty thousand pounds,
4: you yeah. know.
1: Which, which a, in those days was a fortune.
4: Oh, ab- yeah, right.
1: Absolute staggering fortune. Yeah. I thought that's staggering. But then, <laughs> little did we know, the first sales for the album, which was a triple album, uh-huh. were five pound each, and then the first advance sales before it, it even hit the streets was a million.
2: Wow! So that
1: made five million pounds. <laughs> so they only had nine, four, nine hundred and fifty thousand pounds left over. Oh know? my gosh! <laughs> After they'd paid for it, you know. Holy so cow. little did we know, and yeah. little did he know yeah. exactly what kind of sales power he had. You Whoa.
2: know, that's
4: and, amazing. That, and
1: that's the, so he was. We, we later thought, well, how silly of him! You know, he should have known that. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that that such was his. You know, they were living in a bit of a goldfish bowl. Mm-hmm. you know, the Beatles had all their security around them and this, that, and they really didn't know outside of what they were doing what else was going on other than when they talked to other groups and stuff. That's you know? true.
4: Yeah, that's true.
1: That's why they broke up a lot of it. It's because they suddenly realized that the money needed to have a firmer hand on it. And, of course, uh, there was the argument about who should be the manager, you know, and that's mm-hmm. when Alan Klein came in. And, of course, Paul didn't like that. Yeah, he didn't like Alan Klein and and so on and so forth, and he had his reasons, and you know, but that caused a big split right there. Really, was like sorting out who was going to manage what and where the money went. You know,
2: right? Uh,
1: I know Epstein was absolutely mortified when he realised how he'd signed away all of their uh, merchandising.
4: Oh my gosh!
1: He signed away all their merchandising. Oh my gosh! And then of course all the, the, the they late latterly they they realised that they ended up in court for years and years and years trying to sort out who had control of what. By the time they finished, that's you know, true. McCartney turned around and said, "Do you realise we haven't sold a damn T-shirt in ten years?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God!
1: you think how much money we've lost <laughs> and how much money it's cost us? I know. You know yeah. To to argue about this, it's it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You
2: know? Well, that's so the bottom that, line. That's
1: true, by and large, you know. It's amazing how much merchandising was going on, and they weren't seeing a penny for it, you know.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: So, but uh, notwithstanding that, George was so insecure. He said, "I remember distinctly one night, <laughs> aside from the the novelty of having the Harry Krishna people in there, yeah, which you know, I remember one night we were all sitting there, the brass guys, <laughs> typical, <laughs> you know, British brass guys, all desire well, was the food, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, he said, Oh I thought it was sent out for something.' I said, oh, great." So in it came and we realized the Hare Krishna people were all living vegetarians and they had like these nut burgers.
4: That sounds. That sounds <laughs> nut burgers.
1: I <laughs> know all the
2: brass guys are looking like, at I me. Mean, nut- <laughs> what is this? It's very- a nutty
3: burger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a nut burger.
2: Phil,
0: <laughs> would you like a nut
3: burger? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> would, would
3: you like lettuce on that, Phil?
1: Yes, sir, lettuce on your nut burger. <laughs> His faces were a picture, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, of course, then George got down and he all the brass guys downstairs And he sat down with me, and they went out for something. And he sat down with me uh, on the thing and <laughs> said, "Come here." And I sat down, and I suddenly realised I didn't know anything about it. And he's reading the words to "Wawa" to me, uh-huh. and asking me if they're any good. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going. I'm only a sax player. I'm <laughs> just a oh, sax player. Great to me, George. <laughs> That's all he's awesome. asking
3: me for. What do you know? I know. Jeez, you know.
1: But that gives you an idea of how insecure he well, was. There he is. He's asking a sax player from Wallasey, of course, which must mean even worse for a Liverpool guy. Right, right. <laughs> and he's asking him if his words are, if his lyrics are any good.
2: <laughs> oh know? my God! As if
1: I'm the, I'm the you know, I'm the, I'm the one who really knows here. You know. <laughs> so anyway, it all went well. I mean, we did the whole album, this, that, and the other. But you know. One of the downsides of that album it was, uh, I mean, the upside was we had a wonderful time doing it. And, of course, mm-hmm. one night I got a call because we were alternating between uh, Trident Studios where we recorded wah-wah and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I did, like, the head arrangements for that for everybody. And I played the solo on that. And um, we would do some other stuff like the other time I said we were there for nine hours and he was putting strings on. That was EMI Abbey Road. So it was either one of those studios. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one night I got a call to put a nine piece brass section of where it is together and go down to EMI Abbey Road. So I never thought anything about it. And when I got there, of course, we sit there they had string guys and this. And I thought, oh, it must be the same thing. You know, it must be George, you know. And I saw George and I thought, and then I saw Paul. And I thought, oh the thing and then I saw Ringo and then George Martin comes walking down and says oh, wow. this, this is not a George session no. and then I could hear shouting in the distance the crazy man Phil Spector <laughs> you know so I thought this is not thing. and then I suddenly realized what it was and we were putting the brass on Let It Be Wow!
0: and you had no idea of that prior to going to the studio?
1: No not prior to going to the studio they didn't tell you what the track was
0: I mean the, but they, did, I mean, they didn't tell you who was going to no, be at the they session
1: call me i was usually called you see for george there was mal evans was their roadie who had been their roadie since liverpool days uh-huh. and mal evans was the one who would contact me wow. but he would contact me for anyone it didn't matter who it was interesting you know yeah. so if it was a beatles session yeah. i just get a call from mal and say oh okay. we need okay. sort of eight brass guys down can you get them together for you know Tomorrow night at you know whatever seven o'clock or whatever it is down yeah. it. and he would just give me the studio. He wouldn't say what song it was or whether it was a Beatles track. I mean, one night he just turned around and said, "Oh," he said, "We're doing something for John." And I said, "Okay." Uh, he said, uh, "I'll come around and pick you up. We'll pick the other guys up. Can you have them be you know, wherever they are, and we'll pick them up?" And he came around in George's Mercedes. He had this white Mercedes, uh-huh. and um, we all climbed in that. And he said, "Joel, and we went out. We said, "Where the hell are we going?" You know, we went, drove out West London and ended out in Ascot at his house, which is, the you know, the famous one that's on his album. Oh, right. right yeah. You know, the, the uh, whatever it is you know, wherever, the whole house is in white and it's all white inside with gold carpet. Right. Uh-huh. Everything's white. You know, the piano's white. The walls are white. <laughs> the cupboards are white. Everything's white. Everything's white. Uh-huh. You know, and, and, the, and the carpet is gold. That's how they've done the place. <laughs> and we're in there and we're doing these records for the Oz Records, you know, and... Um, that's actually, you know, these, some of these are um, uh, um, kind of my pet peeve now because I looked up the Oz records recently, and I remember we did this all night, you know, me and my sax guys. It was only three sax guys that night. It was me and a Barry player and my second tenor guy, Jeff Driscoll. So it was a guy called uh, Dave Coxhill, uh, who was on Baritone, Jeff Driscoll, and myself.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And we were playing the saxes, you know, all night on the... Ha- and, you know, Yoko's... <laughs> well, the weird thing is <laughs> we're both... Like, Recording away, and all of a sudden you hear in the headphones, you hear, whoa, 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 <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> 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 yeah. She had, get this. She had um, microphones and everything yeah. wired into the toilet. What? So she'd be up there in the toilet. And it was like, come through, and and she'd flush the toilet and be going, whatever, in the bathroom, (laughs) and I'd be coming through the headphones. Okay. (laughs) This is kind of to freak you out. (laughs) So later, we actually did a gig with Lennon on the Lyceum. And we're standing on stage, and he's singing on front, he's got his white suit on, and we're playing the three saxophones, just the same thing, and she's in a bag on the stage. In a bag? In a bag.
0: Okay. (laughs) Wow! Uh, she's
1: in this bag, and she—I think that she must have a microphone or something. She's going whatever you know in this bag, like you know, all that wild sort of warbling and strange stuff Are you—are
0: you, sh- you sure that's exactly what she said?
1: No, exactly. But was, that was an English translation from the Japanese.
0: <laughs> oh, that's crazy! It
1: might lose a little in the translation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so, great. Uh, what an anyway, experience! She's, She's in the bag, and I couldn't believe how you could be in front of all this crowd, and I see him in pitch black darkness inside the bag on the stage rolling around. Oh, my gosh. And we're mm. going, well, that's very avant-garde. Um, as far as I'm concerned, there's a mental part of my brain going, this is crap. <laughs> 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 but there's the other side of it going, what do I know? <laughs>
2: yeah, right, right.
1: <laughs> this might be avant-garde, you yeah. know. Anyway, there she is doing that, you know. So uh, it wasn't, you know, I suppose latterly looking at the fact that she had the toilet wired into the headphones in his studio. <laughs> it was kind of, <laughs> I guess, you know. Um, hey, Phil, you know. I don't know.
3: But, but John <laughs> loves her, okay? John loves her, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, you know, he, he had whatever was going on, you know. Uh, you know cons- I, think, I think to some degree, John was looking for a motherly figure that would be in control. Mm, yeah, you know kind of i mm-hmm. mean i think he missed something in his early life he missed some parental motherly something
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i think she was a very strong alpha female yeah. in terms of you know taking control i mean when he had heroin problems it was her that kicked him out you know
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: i mean it wasn't well was, she wasn't in any way subservient put it that way
2: <laughs> well she a
1: pretty strong personality the only thing that bugged me about both those records I did was, like I say, I went online recently and looked up the Oz records, John Lennon, and I looked down the thing, and it goes, oh, saxophones, Bobby Keys. <laughs> I went, <laughs> what the? <laughs> yeah. That? How that guy gets in and gets his name on things that he never played, I don't know.
0: That's interesting. So he, never, he was never on the album?
1: Well, He's never on the Oz things. He was now on on the George things. Oh, it says yeah. it says Horns. It says uh, Bobby Keys and Jim Price. Huh? And, and in and, fact, there is a third album that I looked at a review once. It turned around and it said, "Well, the third album is just the guys getting together, playing a jam in a studio that couldn't otherwise be together because of union rules and whatever and work permit rules." And basically an after hours jamming thing where everybody got out of their tree and said blues in F everybody, you know, and it it was just that kind of thing. And um, they played on one track on that third album, which, you know, the reviewer said, you play this album once and forget about it. All the good stuff's on the other two. Wow. You know, which is the first two albums, right. because those are all the major tracks we know of, like My Sweet Lord and What's yeah. Life and Wah Wah. There's all the good stuff. That's okay. the first two albums. The last album, everybody plays once and forgets about. Well, Bobby Keys and Jim Price were on one track on that last album. You know, All the other tracks with horns on, which are, most of the ones I've just mentioned, were all done by me and my brass section who booked it, you know. So, unfortunately, I have that. You know, if George was still here, I would have that bone of contention with him, (laughs) It's like, hey, you. (laughs)
4: Oh, gosh, that's really unfortunate. We played
1: all that, not you. But, you know, uh, sadly, a lot of the British rock stars were kind of brought up with that neediness to do that kind of stuff. They would claim all kind of things. I mean, I played for Bowie on Diamond Dogs. That's you know, right. We did all the Bowie things. And you can see us. Now you, you see the actual proof of the pudding because yeah. there's a, a photograph that I sent through to Kim that in fact was photographed by uh, David Ronson. I think it's David Ronson, who is Mick's brother and um, of the 1980 Floor Show. And you can see us standing there because they tried to keep us hidden. They yeah. didn't want us on camera for some reason, although you can hear us very loud in the mix playing oh, yeah. poems. And one of the reasons for that is probably because on the record it says quite clearly all saxophones played by David Bowie. <laughs>
2: really? Oh my God!
1: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> uh, they were actually played by Bill Kenzie, Dave Coxville, and in this case uh, another guy called uh, Jeff Daley. Wow! wow. Get that.
3: That's amazing.
1: Well, those three saxophone players you can see on this photograph, and also there's another. Uh, live version of Gene Genie on the thing and the cameraman got a little over in figures back swung sideways and picked up a shot of the three sax players which I'm sure they didn't want yeah. you know, uh, but nevertheless there we are You know, so proof that we were there and we did play it.
2: That's of course cool. I
1: still have of course the, the invoice that I invoiced uh, <laughs> uh, what do you call it uh, what was his <laughs> manager called, called now? Main man, yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Main man uh, Tony Dufries main man that was his management you know but you see it happened again with Mick Ronson Um, yeah we did an album I was asked to call about, and we actually did not only did the album we toured with him as well on his slaughter on 10th Avenue tour okay and he did an album slaughter on 10th Avenue right and when it went down it said brass Trevor Boulder and Trevor Boulder was the bass player who was rumored once actually (laughs) held a trombone for five minutes
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs)
1: And he got he got so he got the credit for the brass on that album.
0: That's really crazy.
1: (laughs) Well, part of it I think is a management thing at that time. What we didn't realize was that if you were named on the album as doing a thing, you were sort of an artist in a way. And so um, there was a monetary fund Mm -hmm. that was done for needle time, airplay, in other words, and um, that was distributed. Supposedly by the Musicians Union on a certain level, namely to artists. The musicians, however, weren't getting a penny of that. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, interesting. And that
1: now has been rectified. That, that all got changed in 1996 yeah. uh, when they suddenly said, well, and it has been collected since 1948, so they had millions in the bank. Right. And the union did. And they were busy using it for philanthropic. Uh, projects like supporting the Halifax Amateur Operatic Society and stuff like this. Interesting. You know, and the musicians just turned around and said, To hell with this, we were the ones who played those records, right. you know, we need to be paid for them.
2: Yeah. So eventually
1: they had to unearth and, and dig out these accounts and pay everybody a bunch of money. Yeah. Which they did, and now, of course, it's been turned over to public um, things, that the Institute originally called PAMRA, now called PPL, yeah. that distributes um, radio airplay money.
4: I see, yeah. I see.
1: So we get that. You don't get it in America, but you get it in England now because they changed the law in England um, to and internationally, you know, within Europe. I and, see. Uh, I believe even in Australia and the East and Canada now it's happening. But it basically says that anything you play on a record is uh, and what they call an inalienable um, copyright.
4: I see. Interesting. I mean,
1: you can't give it away, and mm-hmm. it basically belongs to you. Right. So.
3: Yep. Well, talk about the studio a little bit. I mean, you know, over the years, you've had m- so many sessions, and, uh, but you're a jazz lover in the heart. And when it comes down to improvisational, you know, playing, that type of thing, when when you, get, when you get brought into a track, how do you like to work? I mean, do they give you charts, or do they ever let you just go, or does that vary with the type of project no, that
1: you No, what happened was the original thing when we started playing, we started playing rock and roll stuff. And the rock and roll stuff varied between certain pop elements, certain um, rock elements, and certain R&B elements, you know. And even with a, a little bit of country thrown in there as well. And that was really all one hotspot. It's not until I came to America I realized that these are quite separate genres that mm. tend to even have their own radio stations and what have you. Okay. Whereas yeah. in England, it was very much all, you know, uh, merged together. And so, and you'd get it all on one bill at the same time. So you, 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 and then you had to learn these records. Now, in those days, there really wasn't any um, charts or anything to go by. And, and I was a self taught player anyway, so I didn't really read music very well. Hmm. I mean, uh, when I did arrangement for people, I did it head arranging. I told them what to play by playing it at them and saying, use this note, that note, that note, and play this, you know.
2: Yeah.
1: And so those who needed to read, would quickly scribble it down with a pencil on a piece of manuscript and read it. But those who didn't need to read would just remember what I told them and play it, you know. And so that's how we did the head arrangements. Um, and uh, when it came to moving on, although I started playing jazz a little bit early on, I very quickly realized that if it was playing rock and roll, I couldn't really play jazz. The two really didn't marry very well together. It wasn't until later in the 70s that you suddenly got bands like, Earth, uh, what, what's the word, uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears.
2: Yeah, right, right.
1: And then you really start, and also Chicago, where you were seeing a blend of jazz and rock, you know, happening. Right. And of course, it was much applauded by the jazz players who felt like they'd been left out of it all. And um, that this was their road into making jazz be a comeback into the popular music vain you know but it was yeah. short-lived i mean there's there's still sort of some crossover bits of jazz into pop but not a lot mm-hmm. you know i mean about the biggest thing probably was in, in terms of jazz things were early on with things like take five by dave brubeck and things like that right yeah uh, and maybe chuck Mangioni, you know and things like that um some mm-hmm. of those things found their way through but by and large most of the horn parts really Came into their strength in England with the um, what are called the Chitlin' Circuit and the um, the R and B thing, you know, such which were very horn oriented.
2: Uh-huh. And of course,
1: they'd been there somewhat earlier than that with James Brown, you know. Uh, a lot of the Undertakers copied James Brown numbers. They just didn't have the horns to do it with. Yeah. They, but they did their own versions of James Brown.
4: You know?
1: And so later on, that became, if you remember, the whole stacks of Vault. Uh, thing where it was, you know, Wilson Pickett. Oh yeah. And, um, oh, I mean, uh, Otis Redding and the, all very horn-oriented stuff, but mm-hmm. not jazz-based. Mm-hmm. Very much R and B-based, you know. Mm-hmm. Very much solos that were probably would have been sneered at by jazz players. You know, things that went better, da little, that you know, things like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not sort of bad, do that, belly, that you know.
2: <laughs> wouldn't right. Have
1: been, wouldn't been a jazz lick, you know. hmm jazz was very getting very um, uh, closed-minded in the sense of, you know, if it wasn't a, quote, jazz phrase, then it wasn't jazz, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what was and wasn't jazz was being debated, you know, mm-hmm. on that level. Um, whereas, I mean, R&B just moved on and on, you know, um, and eventually became quite sophisticated with Marvin Gaye and stuff like that, which, to me, had some jazz overtones, but I don't think the R&B people felt that way, you know, by that time.
0: Right. Well, hey, guys, let's take a quick break. And uh, something we're going to discuss later in the interview is uh, Phil's upcoming album project called A Night With a Cat hasn't been released yet, but we're going to chat a little bit about it. But I do have a few tracks and I want to play some samples uh, of those songs that will be on Phil's upcoming album. And the first one we're going to take a break and listen to is the title track from the album called A Night With a Cat. I want to I want to jump ahead because there's there's something I wanted to you, you had mentioned Al Stewart earlier in the in the yeah. interview and of course your connection to him and the sax parts that you laid down for you know say the Year of the Cat album and, uh-huh. and even Time Passages they're, it, it's, it, they're legendary and from what I understand this was uh, th- this was the first time I think on that Year of the Cat album it was the first time you ever recorded with an alto sax and when you were well, asked it's,
1: when you were it's asked a to, alto story if you want to hear it
0: oh sure yeah go ahead.
1: Well, what happened was um, I had been playing saxophone for some time and, um, of course, looking towards America all the time yeah. and watching the first British invasion and then the second British invasion uh-huh. and, and hearing all the stories of people, you know, rock and roll and all the girls and wow and how amazing it was and, you know, acid trips, drugs, cocaine, you name it. Yeah. Wow, this is amazing. This is the, <laughs> this is the early 70s. Oh, you yeah. know, this is like rock and roll in the early 70s. And by that time, um, I had, um, in fact, gotten to know a guy called Richard O'Brien who had asked me to uh, perform some rock and roll stuff and make up the rock and roll stuff for his little musical he was putting on called The Rocky Horror Show.
4: Oh, right, right.
1: See, so, well, I had done about three years of that, so I was piling up the money from a steady-wage of a West End show at Union Scale, on top of which I was getting tours, I was getting recordings, what have you, and I had a very nice apartment where uh, um, I'd got low rent and was able to rent out two of the other bedrooms, so I had like a three-bed, which in London was a wonderful situation. So I was just piling money into the bank, you know, and um, by the time 1976 arrived around, um, I kind of become resigned to the fact that I was never going to America. It just wasn't going to happen. Uh-huh. You know, so I was kind of, oh, you know, every time I played on anything, they picked up another sax player in America, and I never went, you know. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, well, I'm just going to have to make do with being here, and I'm making money. So I made enough money that I suddenly realized we'd had enough money to put down on a house. And that, for a musician in London, was probably almost impossible. But I thought, wow, I'm really getting somewhere with this. Yeah. So we went looking down in southwest London uh, because my second tenor player that I always put in, Jeff Driscoll, he lived down that direction. He was from London himself. And he said, it's really nice down here. You should try it down here. It's great for getting into London and, you know, all that. And it's nicer where you are. We were in Northampton. Quite a good area, but expensive to buy. I couldn't have afforded to have bought in in the area I, I was renting, you know. So we went down there and spent the only day I had off, a Sunday um looking around at houses and by five o'clock in the afternoon we would looked at three or four houses and i was absolutely blown out by it and tired and wanting to go home and watch the sunday night movie at eight o'clock yeah and um and so about five thirty we stepped onto the um stepped out of the building having returned the last set of keys and just by sheer chance my wife turned back and looked at the door as a gentleman was putting on a polaroid picture of a house they'd just listed Wow. And she goes, "Oh, look at this!" And I said, "Well, what? You're not going to want to look another way." It's five thirty. We've got to get home. And she said, "No, no. Let's go look at this one." And I said, "Oh God, okay." So there's my resistance right away. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, I was really for this. You know, well, what did I know that in the next two hours my entire life would be changed?
2: Right.
1: My entire life. Jeez. And get this. This is the weird part about it. So we go look at the house, it turns out it's fabulous, it's the place we want to buy, and in fact, we did buy it, but before that, we turned around and said, quick, let's rush the key back, drop it through the door, you know, they'll be closed by now, we'll, we'll drop it through the door, and we'll rush around and see Jeff and tell him we're going to be neighbors. That changed everything, we went around to Jeff's house, I sat there and we're gushing about this house and how fabulous it is and how we'll be living not that far from them, you know, we would all be able to go out together. And he said, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. I said, uh, I've had a bit of luck too. And I said, what's that? He said, well, you will not believe this, he said, but uh, before the war, I think about 1939 or something like that. Um, it turned out to be 1939. He thought it was 1937, but the date doesn't really matter. He turned around and said, a woman was married to a saxophone player who ended up dying. As it turned out, he died in the war you know, and he Whoa. died just after he'd bought a saxophone. Right? <laughs> okay And she was she was so in love with him that she had refused to part with his saxophone. Uh, so there's a war story right for you right there.
2: Yeah.
1: And she kept it under the bed all this time until nineteen seventy six. So wow. it's been there since actually nineteen thirty nine, which uh-huh. is the start the outbreak of World War Two.
2: Right, till
1: right. nineteen seventy six. And he said at this point she decided this was silly. It was a long time ago. And basically, she should sell it. And um, therefore, you know, somebody would get the use from it. He said, and I bought it. Uh-huh. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, it's an alto. And I said, well, I lost interest. I said, I don't like altos. I just play <laughs> tenor. You know, the, the you know. it's not rock and roll. You know. yeah. It's not a man's instrument. You know. So he said, never mind. He said, have a look. So I opened the case. And it, this thing went like the magic
2: saxophone.
1: I looked at it, and it's a silver in beautiful condition. I mean, like new, silver, Selma balance action alto with beautiful engraving down the bell and just glinting. I went, oh, that's fabulous. Uh, I'd really like to play that one sometime, you know, just looking at it. And then he he turns to me and says a, a thing that sax players don't say. He goes, well, why don't you borrow it? (laughs) <laughs> I'm not using it. I won't need it till Tuesday. Why don't you borrow it? Okay. So I go, you sure? And he goes, yeah. And says, said, okay. So I packed the thing, put it in the thing, and we rushed home. So I drive all the And by now it's 7 o'clock. We just get to home at like 5 to 8. It's about 20, 30 miles across town to North Hampstead, you know. Get there, walk through the door, sit down. I'm just about to rush the made-for-TV movie at 8 o'clock. Two minutes to 8, the phone goes. I pick the phone up. It's Alan Parsons. I go, and I've done work with him before, so it's nothing yeah. new. And I go, hello, Alan, what's up? And he goes, oh, I've got a session for you. I go, oh, okay, what day? And he goes, no, now. <laughs> and I went, oh, literally, I put my hand up and went, oh, hmm, you know, <laughs> said some expletive. I said, uh, where are you? And he goes, EMI Abbey Road, which from north where we were was right around the corner, about five minutes away by car. Yeah. And I said, uh, I can be there in about an hour. And he goes, oh, uh, hang on a minute. And I put my hand, hand over the phone. I thought, oh, shit, I've blown the session. I've blown it. And I said, never mind, I'll watch the movie. And he comes back and he goes, uh, yes, I'll do. that will be okay. So, okay, put the phone down. I watch the movie. So there's twice I resisted this. <laughs> right?
2: Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, go, I go down to the session, 9 o'clock at night. I walk in, they've got this beautiful track, perfect for the mood I'm in, no vocal, or violins, and he goes, Oh, there's a the violin, here's the thing, here's this, song, here's this electric, song, I want you to play right here after this electric solo. So and there's just a newspaper in the corner, you know, with a pair of hands on it, can't even see who it is. And, um, and Alan's sitting at the desk, you know, and I go out there, and he goes, Oh, and I think it'd be great on alto. <laughs> I go, What?
4: Gosh.
1: He goes, Alan, I don't play alto. Oh, he my God. No. I said, I'm a tenor player. And he goes, Oh, I said, but by sheer chance, I just happened to have an alto in the back of the car. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Right? Wow. So I, I take the alto out, I, I put it out. I, I don't know if there was a reed there. I don't know if the mouthpiece is any good whether I'll be a player. I put the reed on it. Think, I think I put the mouthpiece I'm playing the thing. I think, Oh, phew, yeah, I can play this. I think I can play this. Okay, right. I said, so, I, I think we're okay. I think we can go. And he goes, okay. So I go in there. No word of a It was two passes. I come out and he says, I think one of you, you play on the end. I played on the end. 20 minutes, I'm out the door with a check in my hand. Right? <sighs> um, that outro, I gave back to him. I'd never <laughs> seen it again.
4: Oh, my gosh.
1: Never seen it again. Oh, wow. And it was like, think about this. It was lying under the bed since two years before I was born. Wow! And it was after. I mean, I always think my hairs gold my arm when thinking about because it, it's like, okay, you're going to America, um, you'll need an alto, and here's one. I've had it set down for you. Well, you can my, only have it. You can only have it for two hours.
0: <laughs> well, hey Phil, question. Um, this thing's been lying under the bed for however many years, thirty something years or whatever it was, and I mean, you pull about it out. The,
1: thirty nine years or thirty six years or something like that, yeah. yeah,
0: but you pull it out from the case and it looks beautiful and everything, but I would imagine you know uh I mean how was it to play i mean was it was it a little was it a little it probably wasn't very loose, wasn't it? it was probably sticky and
1: it was absolutely like it had been in a time capsule
0: <laughs> wow <laughs> it was
1: it was a it was perfect <laughs> It just, and it was shiny. That's crazy. I couldn't believe it. It was like no air had got to it. Yeah, Like yeah. the case was airtight or something.
0: Oh, my gosh. And it sounded so beautiful, too.
1: It hadn't even gone brown. You oh, know, yeah. nothing. It was just like that. I mean, he says now he's still got the alto, And I said, really? He said, yeah, I won't part with that one. <sighs> and I, I I said, well, uh, you know, what the, oh, he says, it's a bit brown now. He says, it's, it's like, I, you know, I said, well, why don't you clean it? you know." <laughs> 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 Uh, but that's it. It was laying under that bed, ready for to do that, and and that was year of the cat.
2: Yeah. That's and I, and
1: I got a, a call um, three months later around about close to November that they were coming into town and they were about to do um, a TV thing. And could I do it? And they called me like about a week before. I had to run around like a crazy person trying to find an alto. Yeah. And I was so obsessed with it at that point. I actually went looking for what he said it was, which was a 1937. And I actually bought a 1937 alto from an 80-year-old musician who was retiring. Wow. And you imagine so the one I had had to have been all the way through the war and played all that music, you know, the big band stuff sure. and everything. And I still have that one and I've just put I put about $1100 into it recently to have it completely restored to oh, new. Oh my
0: goodness. <laughs> And so
1: it it is in beautiful condition now. But that's 1937. Turns out when I looked at, we compared the serial numbers recently, that his was actually a 1939. Because originally, when it was, I thought it was a 37, we didn't understand how he had died. But then we realized being a 1939, yes, he'd been called up. He'd he'd gone into the war. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how he never came back.
0: Well, it was Alan Parsons who called you into the studio for that part. But, I mean, uh, tell me about your relationship with Al Stewart. Are you guys pretty tight? Uh, Did you know him before that?
1: No, I had never met him before that. And, in fact, that night we both said all that happened was I always joked that Alan was always a man of very few compliments, you know. I mean, I played this solo, which obviously has turned out to be, you know, voted God knows what as the greatest, you know, one of the best rock solos of whatever, and, it, you know, and I think, yeah. oh, terrific, I love that kind of praise. It's not surprising, and, um, yeah. uh, But I worked in playing it, and I played the thing, and I, I walked in, and he said, oh, come in. And he goes, um, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> go, well, that's high praise indeed. Yeah. And, and the newspaper came down till I saw the tip of a nose above it, and he went, yes, very good, and went back up again. Wow. You know, so that's, that's, that was, yes, very good was all I heard out of Al Stewart. hmm you know, and he didn't venture any. You know, yeah, great, oh, that's terrific, or you know, wow, or whatever, everything like that. Uh, and uh, later on, when I got the call, I mean, it was just to buy his management to go down and do the old grey whistle test. Yeah. And sadly, when I got down there to do it, and I got the the alto that I'd now purchased to do that with, um, uh, nobody had a copy of the record. Uh huh. You know, they had not got one, there, and and then we were going on live. And I I had not played it for three months before. And of course, it happened so fast in like 20 minutes, I couldn't even remember what I'd played. Right, yeah, yeah. So I I had to go on the Grey Whistle Chase live TV (laughs) and wing it, you know? And uh, so, and, and, and of course, as irony would have it, of all the times I played that solo great on this tour, this, that, and the other, the only video I could find online of me playing that solo is the old Grey Whistle Test. Okay. When I'm struggling through it trying to remember what the heck I played, <laughs> <laughs> that's wow. the one that's on YouTube, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And that's the first time, of course, I played that one on, it, on anything, that's, that yeah. particular alto, which I now have. That's the one I later played on uh, Poco's Heart of the Night, oh, and, yeah. of course, Time Passages and Song on the Radio and Midnight Rocks for Al. You know. Those are all the four um, alto tracks or sax. Well, not alto, what I'm talking about. Um, there's the four charting tracks. Singles that has mm-hmm. ever had, yeah. Right, yeah. right? You know, in America, they basically charted. I think twenty nine, twenty four, eight, and seven, according to Billboard. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm mm-hmm. on every one of them. You know, and, and it's, uh, aside from Year of the Cat, uh, three of them are that are the alto I now still have. You know, yeah. I wouldn't part with that one either.
0: Hey guys, let's take another quick break, and let's listen to a sample of one more track from Phil's upcoming uh, album project called A Night with a Cat. And this is a track called Hold Me. mentioned Time Passages a minute ago, and, and I think you, you went out on tour with Al Stewart for that uh, particular record, and I think you found yourself shortly after in Rod Stewart's band, and, and from what I understand, Rod basically stole you away from Al, is that right?
1: Well, yeah, though, I had been playing with Rod um, very early on while I was staying, you know, with Al, we were staying at, the, we were moved from the Chateau Marmont where we had been staying on to the Hyatt house,
2: uh-huh.
1: and the Hyatt house at that house, I think probably still does, has a pool on the roof. And I went up to the pool, and and we were sitting there with my wife, and I was sitting there by the pool, and I looked sideways, and there was Jim Cregan. And uh, Jim Cregan had been called out from England to be one of the last members to join the newly forming Rod Stewart group, Okay. and he was like guitarist number three, so he's feeling kind of vulnerable and wanting to ensure his position in the band, because he was actually the weakest link at that point in time, because... Um, for solo work and rock work, Rod definitely wanted Gary Granger. And from the point of view of the Chuck Berry rhythm that Rod was addicted to, he had Billy Peake was his first choice because Billy Peake had played nine years with with Chuck Berry and could play Chuck Berry like, you know, Chuck Berry wished he could, you know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and
1: um, so Jim's was the picking stuff, you know, which was kind of the weaker area of guitar. So, um, he knew that Rod was looking for a sax player to play on, on some of his stuff, so he quickly rushed me down to Cherokee Studios, and I ended up playing on, the, on his first album, which was Footloose and Fancy Free. Oh,
2: that's uh, okay, okay.
1: And I played, I played on that album and um, ended up... In fact, Rod gave me a, 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 a one of the tracks there to do like a, a parts arrangement for one, um, uh, one particular track, and so I actually did, you know, did some head parts on, on one of the tracks and played solos on several of the others, including uh, If Loving You Is Wrong. And uh, I think there's one called um, My Girl. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, there's a, there's a few tracks I did uh, um, uh, for him on that album. And he took me out to dinner at the, was a Chinese restaurant right on Sunset there. And he had with him at the time, there was a Canadian model called Liz Treadwell. Uh-huh who was a big model, I think he was trying to date her at the time, and we sat and had lunch, and he intimated about me going on tour with them then, but it was a kind of, would you want to, but I'm not offering you just yet, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, I would, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Uh, but it never came to anything. So I carried on with Al, and then did the uh, time passes and everything, and next year, he calls me up again uh, to do all the stuff on, on um, Blondes Have More Fun.
4: Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm.
1: So I did the blonde have more fun thing. And again, I'm waiting for this invitation. Well, you know, you were going to ask me to go on tour. Now, you you know, you act like you're going to ask me again. But, you know, nothing's happening. Uh So I thought, oh, well, I may as well just go out with Al. I don't have an offer here, you know. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there's one of these magic nights on on, uh, Sunset Boulevard at the Roxy. And um, I go in there and everything is very weird. There's people coming up to me and and saying, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, the industry's looking towards you. You're you're going to be, you know, the and I'm going. How the hell do these people know? Who are they? You know, and um, and my wife is going. This is very strange. What's going on? And of course, then later on, he realised also that uh, Rod Stewart was in the audience, and um, so I'm about to go on for <laughs> uh-huh. Al, and you know, and and Rod Stewart's sitting at the back there. and, uh-huh. Various things are going off, you know, including, including Charlie Harrison from Poco, the bass player from Poco, who had previously played for that, was in there, yeah. and he was yelling things at the top of his voice about the bloody sax player. <laughs> 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 I was going, Oh, this is going to be really one of those nights, you know, where I don't know where, where to put myself, you know. Yeah. So, next thing I know, anyway, I play the thing and uh, I do the, the uh, solos and what have you, and there's still sort of stuff going on, and I see Rod get up and disappear out the door. Next thing I know, I come off stage and there's this guy going, Rod wants to see you upstairs in Top of the Rocks, you know. So um, I go sauntering upstairs and there he is at the thing. He says, oh, yeah, come back to my place, you know. So I end up going out to his Beverly Hills place and he walks me out in the garden and offers me the job. Wow. So that's, (laughs) yes, yes, he did steal me. (laughs) I guess so. Wow. You know, (laughs) I mean, Al wasn't paying a great deal of money. I guess he was playing what he thought he could afford, but yeah. I certainly, when I, I went on tour with the wrestling till the raw, the, I realized I had to leave the tour by the time we got to Montreal. Uh-huh. So I flew from there to England and from there to Birmingham where they were doing the rehearsals. But um, I had pre-told the management and, and in fact trained another sax player to take over from me on the tour. So I took care of, you know, their end so they weren't left, you know, Flat or anything, and um, but they never turned around and said, "Well, what's he what's the offering you? We can double it or something." You know, right. there was no bargaining went was like, "Okay, you're leaving. That's it." You know, mm-hmm. and so off I went. You know, um, I still don't know whether Al resents me for that or not because <laughs> he certainly has. He's done things that are questionable, put it that way. yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, that that uh, suggest, but a lot of it is based around the fact that. It's not so much, um, you know, me, necessarily, but also the whole saxophone thing. It really um, put him in an area where he felt like he was reliant on using saxophones to give him hits. Mm -hmm. And converse of that, when he didn't use saxophones, he didn't have hits.
4: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: You know, so it was like, well, was it really the saxophone, or was it the fact that your writing suffered? You know, in other words... You didn't write as good songs. I personally think it's the latter. I think he, he shied away from the commercial trying to pretend that that wasn't really him. Yeah. And he ended up writing stuff that really wasn't going to be top twenty stuff.
0: Yeah, because he know? was he was really into the folk scene, wasn't he?
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and he also went you know, deliberately went into the um, That's my comfort zone. I like sitting on a seat and telling stories. But the problem with that is that if you don't carry the full band, and I don't care how you play it, yeah. um, uh, Year of the Cat and things like that are a certain arrangemental, psychiatric thing that sure. work. You know, I mean, in other words, if you take Year of the Cat on its own, it's a fantasy story of uh, every man's dream of a love of affair. Sure, it, It's, you know, this... And it's also set against a love affair, being Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca, the suggestions of it being that kind of a, a, of a place.
2: Yeah, right, you know? right.
1: And, and then on top of that, you say, there you are in this strange place with this fantasy world of the Arabian Nights and all this kind of thing, and this beautiful girl runs out of the sun looking like you know a watercolour in the rain, grabs your arm and rushes you off for a mad passionate night of lovemaking, you know. You go, well, I mean, what man doesn't go? Yeah, I could go for that. You know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, for a start, you, you've you got the man's attention right there. <laughs> yeah. you, know? you know, and then on top of that, you do something that is never done on any pop record before or since. You do a four-part musical interlude which gives you a dramatic romantic cello start yeah. moving into a kind of a foreplay uh, romantic titillation of the acoustic solo leading into the passionate uh, throes of, 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 of excitement in the electric guitar solo <laughs> and finally the orgasm of the saxophone <laughs> That's right. and yep. you go and, and you play this to human beings
0: yeah. Eddie and I you are know, sweating I
1: mean all over the world who are you know, geared towards procreating and love making and having orgasms, <laughs> and you, you play this and wonder why they come out of their seats.
4: Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: You know, it's <laughs> subliminally, it's attacking the very core of their nature. Are we, are we going to have to pay you for this? But <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: so you see what I mean. Oh God, it's, it's getting know, hot in here. Rich. Open the door. That's open the door.
1: The base roots of behavioural pattern for every man on the planet and i don't care whether it's uh you know whatever maybe it's lost on people who don't speak english i don't know but even they seem to know enough english to grasp what the whole song's all about and sure enough it doesn't matter whether i play the solo or after me the next saxophone player that comes along plays my solo the audience still comes out of their seats at the same place yeah you know in the song in fact dave campbell one of the sax players who followed me about two sax, sax players after me with Al Stewart, cheering round to the manager, Steve Chapman, and said, I think I deserve a record deal. And he says, what do you mean, you do have a record deal? And he said, well, he said, I'd play that solo every night and the audience comes out of their seats. And Steve <laughs> says, it wouldn't matter who played that solo. He said, it's Steve Phil Kenzie's solo. He said, that's what they're applauding, not yeah. you. <laughs> 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 you know, he thought it was him, you know. Uh, but it doesn't great. matter. You could have replaced him with another, you know, thing. As long as you play that sax solo, they'll come out their seats. <laughs> that's what idea. they do. <laughs> you know, and th- that was the problem. Having constructed all that, Al couldn't stand it, could it upstaged him
2: oh yeah well
4: that's true that's true
1: standing on the stage having worked himself to death all night and given all the jewels of his writing you come to you the, the cat is the end of the thing and bingo they all jump out of their seats start cheering the sax player
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, uh, he resented that like he hated that
2: yeah oh my goodness. you
1: know and then of course he's obliged on top of that to put um more saxophone on his next hit because that's what you know, Arister and people, and and indeed, he, he even he himself realized he had to do if he wanted another hit.
4: Interesting. You
1: know, oh, and that's yeah. why Time Passages came into being, you yeah, know. Yeah,
2: right.
4: Al
1: was, Al was as naughty as hell on that session. Wow. Yeah. He sat in that session. I came in to play the thing, and for a start, they wrote the hard, that That record is the weirdest record because not really by design, but just by resentment and, and, and naughtiness and just generally wanting to uh, make people have it, it became a record that, one, has the highest note ever played on a saxophone on a hit record.
0: That's, yeah, I read that, yeah.
1: Number two, it has the hardest uh, chord sequence of any saxophone solo on any record for the last 60 years. yeah. <laughs> That so chord sequence is really difficult and yeah. angular. Mm-hmm. And number three, they make you do it twice <laughs> in <It's laughs> the same song. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's true. So, I mean, there's three records right there. You don't get a saxophone solo twice that length in a, in a hit song. Mm-hmm. You don't get a high note like that, and you certainly don't get a chord sequence that that's, that's that damned hard to play. That's, you know?
0: Those are really good points. And uh, yeah. that
1: song has all three. Yeah. And the reason for that is they wrote it hard because Peter White was trying to prove himself as a musical genius. So he wanted, you know, he, was, he had something to prove to Al that he was, you know, could write something that was really clever, you know. And Al, Al enjoys clever. He likes clever. Mm-hmm. So and then on top of that, I go in there to play the saxophone and Al kind of almost glares at me and says, I want you to play a high note and fall off it into the solo. So I play the high note on the five of the of the key, which is an A, which is the the first harmonic above on the alto, and he goes, Hmm looks at me and goes, Can you play it an octave higher? <laughs> it's already out of the range and now I've got to play a, an octave higher. So it took me two hours to eventually play this extremely excruciating high note and fall off it into the solo, and that's how that came to be.
4: Interesting. Wow. You
1: know? Wow. And then of course he said he said, Oh, and I want you to play you know, um, like a Yackety Sax into the into the second solo. I said, "Well, like, what do you mean?" And yeah. he goes, "Like, and I go, okay, yeah, that's right. that's okay. I get it.'" <laughs> I thought okay. "It wouldn't be how I'd enter the second solo, but nevertheless, and that's what I had to do." So everything that's in there was done because he was being a little bit, you know, trying to make me have it or fail or whatever Yeah. Was, on the solo, and, was, and um, it ended up how it ended up.
0: He was you know? working you, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. so well, well, he was literally working me to death yeah, so he was uh, determined like he it. was going to make it uh, because the first one year of the cat had been almost easy, you see. And uh, he, I guess he'd been somewhat um, uh, amazed how something that happened in 20 minutes could be such a massive hit. You know, he really mm-hmm. had to sort of use his um, or take control, as it were. That's mm-hmm. what he was really doing, taking control. Yeah. You know of the artistic content, so he he felt like he had more say in what was going to go on right, record,
2: you right. know?
1: but then you know he so they were so determined to have a saxophone hit that they did song on the radio and song on the radio, my goodness, I, you know I felt like they overdid it, yeah. you know that I had saxophone wall to wall <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we need more saxophone. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he's like, more cowbell, you know. More cowbell! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. You know, I started playing at the, the top of the song, and then every time they just could, and again, you know, play again. You know, and I played none played the lick. But I played the thing, and and between every verse and between, I mean, it's nothing but saxophone from front to back.
0: Oh, that's you funny! Know? Oh
1: my that's god! Oh my goodness! I think you've, you've you've gone a bit far this time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Phil, these are those are fantastic stories, uh, accounts of your time with with Al, Al Stewart, and and thanks so much for. For sharing those with us, and um, you know, I just wanted to just real quickly. I wanted to point out that you know, we've mentioned Rod Stewart, we've mentioned Al Stewart, we've mentioned Alan Parsons, and some of the people you've been connected with. But you've also, you know, just for our listeners, you've also been involved with you know bands like the Eagles, Roger Daltrey, America. You mentioned Poco, mm-hmm. Tom Petty, Carla Bonoff, Bo Diddley. Of course, Al Stewart, and the list goes on and on. But just a curious question uh, from all the artists that you've been, and I don't know, maybe this is not a fair question, but has there been, maybe it's Al Stewart, the, the connection, or the, uh, the story you just told us, but who's been the most demanding artist for you to play for?
1: Um, well, funny enough, the one that was actually the most demanding in terms of exactness uh-huh. was uh, Kenny Loggins.
0: That that doesn't surprise me actually because I've I've heard he he's been a guest on our show before too and and uh, uh-huh. I know he's and quite the Kenny perfectionist. Just
1: wanted exact everything yeah. had to be totally perfect.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: you know, to the point whereby he had a drummer that was who was a young guy. I mean, you know, not really very experienced, and he was petrified. I literally had to hold his hand every night probably before going on stage <laughs> because Kenny, um, literally had. That no bass player, the bass parts were on a Fostex tape machine, and wow. he had yeah, and he had a click on the same machine that was given to the drummer, which means the drummer could not vary off that click for a second. Yeah, and the poor kid was having to play really hard tracks. I mean, things like Danger Zone, and you know, and um, uh, you know, uh, Footloose, and things like that, and you know, and play these things. And stay glued to this bass on a on a tape machine, yeah and and I had to play you know stuff like that, um, you know, sax parts and this that and the other, and one of them had been a David Sanborn. it was one of, yet another time when I was replacing David Sanborn, and um, I had to uh, literally play the thing, and I'd play the solo and he'd go, "Yeah, but you know when you play that high note, he bends it just a little bit more than that. <laughs> Okay! Oh, wow! Oh, I got to, okay, so I got to bend it. You know, I got to practice bending it just the right amount. <laughs> you know what? What? I mean, what uh, he, he was anal to the nth degree, you know, and so very demanding in that regard, and and slightly humourless about it, you know. <laughs> well,
0: what uh, what what Kenny Loggins tracks are you referring to that you played on? That uh, was it? Was it those those two you mentioned? Footloose and, and Danger Zone.
1: Well, these were ones that we. Played. I mean, I didn't play on them on record. Okay, um, you're talking he basically live. Basically, used David Sanborn, but David Sanborn wasn't available or something like that for to go I on see. tour. So I went on tour with him, doing all the tracks. Doing. A, well, I did play on on Danger Zone, but I didn't play on. Um, uh, I didn't play on the other ones. I didn't. Yeah. Play, and he gave me a solo on Footloose, although there isn't one on the record. That was a, one of his few departures. But that was purely for the stage, you know? Okay. Uh, just like the Eagles, I mean, I played on the long run on the Eagles, and there wasn't a sax solo on the record, but they gave me one on the live version.
2: Yeah. You know?
1: In fact, I, I, I think it's one of my best solos, that one is the one on the, the live Eagles one. It works really well. You know, there are a lot of stories, of course, about the Eagles, too. In fact, this, you know, the fact that I've worked so many, with, with so many artists is the premise for my new band that we're doing. Well, it's not mine specifically, but I was called by a, a, a drummer, a famous um, a Brooks and Dunn drummer called Jimmy Gunn. Right. And Jimmy wanted to put together this band whereby we, we draw on all of the people we played with.
0: Yeah. Is this the Vinyl Connection band?
1: Yes, vinyl okay. connection. I wanted to get in a little bit of mention of them sure, uh, because sure. we're just we're just launching them and we're very excited about it. And we've got a gig coming up in in November down in Boca Raton which wow. I'm really looking forward to. It looks like it'd be great. The idea of the band is we not only play the hits, you know, that we've necessarily, you know, in my case done the solos on or in his case played the drums on, but we also um, use the, you know, video behind us to make the connection. So you can, because there's now a ton of video of me and Jimmy, what have you, all appearing all over YouTube of, um, you know, the artists we played with. Video I didn't even know existed, much of it, you know. Yeah. Stuff like the tours with Rod and uh, the, when we did the, the, the UNICEF tour with Rod, you know, with uh, the Bee Gees and people like that when we played the United Nations building, mm-hmm. all the video of that has now appeared. and I didn't even know there was any video of that, you know. Very cool. And, and, of course, the David Bowie stuff, all that video is appearing from the 1980 Floor Show. And um, it's amazing what video is out there. I've seen photographs and video that I have never seen before in my life. <laughs> wow. had no idea existed, you know. Yeah. And uh, so you, you'd be surprised who's got a camera on you. <laughs> that's
0: for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's right? true, especially today.
1: I'm going to have to check my curtains in my bedroom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, hey Phil, we uh, we really appreciate all the time you've spent with us. We've learned a ton talking absolutely, to you today. And absolutely, absolutely. Just, just one, real quick, just real shortly. I, I understand, and I don't know if you can talk about this much, and huh? but I understand that you're in the process of creating a sequel to Year of the Cat. It's an album that you're doing with Peter White. Can you tell oh, us? Oh
1: yeah, this this is an album that um, I had previously uh, put together, and uh, Peter helped me in in, in bringing in some, uh, doing some tr- piano track parts. Some um, certainly some guitar solo parts on his uh, now-famous um, uh, nylon guitar use, and, um, and he also wrote a song, um, which I have titled. We had sort of preliminary titles for it, but I suddenly realized what the album was in a sort of brainwave, in like a big flash it came to me, That I what I was writing, I had originally titled the work, title for the album, was Unsafe Sax, okay, (laughs) um, which I had coined for my for my email and everything else, you know. So I got kind of locked into that, and several so few people, not many, but some said, "I don't know if that's a good promoting title." And I said, "Well, why not? It's funny." He said, "Yeah, but the humor is not what you're about. In fact, the album is really a romantic story because what I had gone to write." was on the premise of unsafe sex was a a romantic evening where a guy meets a girl and they, they have a romantic evening and have sex and the next day, as it were, and how that might be, a one night like that might be, you know, unsafe, as it were. Uh-huh. But they said, well, yeah, well, that's all very well, but you create this romantic thing and then you finger wag at them like, oh, naughty, shouldn't have done <laughs> that, you know. And they said, that's not a great uh, marketing ploy because people don't want to hear that. Yeah. And I said, well, what is it really? And I suddenly thought, a night where a guy meets a girl, and they go, I thought, oh, my God, it's Year of the Cat.
4: Interesting. Oh, yeah, That's interesting. That's exactly
1: what it is. Okay, okay. So I immediately, you know, said went about and, and uh, um, adjusted the song titles that I'd written to fit. And, and, and amazingly, it fit perfectly. Wow. Even down to one of the funny things is, Uh, When I did the first track, which I had titled, I now titled uh, Night with the Cat. I originally had called it Unsafe Sax just to have a title that was kind of the title of the album. You know, so I had a single kind of thing. And it never really sat well with me. When I first did the song, I, for some reason, had the idea that it was a, a romantic evening in which the woman involved at the end sadly looks at him and says, Don't leave or don't go. You know, please stay, in other words, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I had one of the back of the girls do that in the back of the track. Just she sort of, uh, towards the end of the song, she, in, a, in a lull in the music, she goes, Don't go, don't go, you know, one of those words. And I thought, that's kind of sexy, you know. And, um, and then I suddenly realized, of course, that one of the last lines in the song is, You know, one day you're bound to leave her, is the words in Year of the Cat.
0: That's right. Yeah, you know what I
1: mean? Yep. and I thought, oh my god, it fits.
0: Yeah, that's really cool.
1: So that's why I called it a night with the cat, you know. And and of course, it, I thought, well, that's kind of clever too, because you know, all saxophone players and you know, players and musicians in general have been called cats.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: Nashville Cats, for instance. You know, uh-huh. cats who play instruments. So that's you know, that's that's kind of a cat thing. You know, yeah. uh, and I thought, well, that fits as well. You know, so so that's what it is, A Night with the Cat. And, of course, cool. it has the titles. The first one is, of course, Silk Dress. And um, the second title is Watercolor.
0: Okay, I see. A, I see, you see you know what you're mean? Yep, yep.
1: And, and uh, Peter's song has ended up being called Incense and Patchouli. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Pulling it straight from the song. Yeah,
1: They're all straight from the song. You know, yep. there's ones that aren't. Yep. And, of course, there are some nice musicians in addition have played on it. Um, the now sadly departed Bob Babbitt played oh. on one of the songs. Mm-hmm. The bass oh, wow. player, who, who from Motown, from yeah, and amazing. also there's a song on there called "Amazing," which is kind of the afterglow um, thing. You okay. know, because the whole thing is being now extended to a full ten songs. Uh-huh. You know, the, the 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 evening is more than just the small. Uh, instrumental break on the on the Euro Cap, it's the whole day and evening. In fact there's one afterwards that's called a brand new the brand new was it, uh, The Rhythm of the Night and the Brand New Day, I think it's called it, okay. is 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 again straight from the lyric. But the amazing one was written by the now also sadly departed from one of his last performances, Larry Nectel. And okay. Larry Nectel was the keyboard player from the Wrecking Crew with Hal Blaine out in L.A., who also coincidentally was the keyboard player on um, Bridge Over Troubled Waters for uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. So he's on it as well.
0: Well, it sounds like a very cool project, and uh, you'll have to keep us posted on when it's going to be coming out. And we—oh, can... absolutely!
1: I'll be, I'll be sending you a copy and all that. You oh, know? great! Right awesome. now, the artwork is being done, and my daughter's doing it, and she's doing it's going to be properly drawn artwork, not just Photoshop movie. You know, Photoshop photos, as it were. It's going to be actual artwork, oh, okay. real artwork. You know, very cool. She's, so she's drawing that, so that'll be another little feature of it. And uh, hopefully I'll have enough because I'm, I'm going to be doing this um, uh, appearing with Al um, on the um, Royal Albert Hall. Oh, okay. On, on, on October the 15th.
2: Wow, that's and cool. And we're
1: doing the entire, um, as, it's put, as the critics call it, his masterpiece, <laughs> which must stick in his craw because he tries to deny it all the time, but his masterpiece, the Year of the Cat album.
0: Really? From top to Endi- bottom?
1: Ending with the Year of the Cat. Wow. So I expect as I set, as I finish playing the solo and the, European, the audience comes out of their seat, I'll be getting glares from the other side of the <laughs>
0: <state>. <laughs> Well, maybe that's all been forgotten. But, you know, it'll
1: be the, the only time in England that I've ever played it, you know, wow. aside from the, the record itself and, and, and the TV, but the only time I've ever played it on stage live. Wow. Every other time I've played it has been in the States or in Hawaii, you oh, know, okay. well, again, the United States, you know.
0: Well, you have to pull out that 1937 and uh, and uh, get that all polished up and ready for that performance.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, and ironically, the guy who lent me the other horn, who still has it, will be there in the audience. Oh, cool.
0: He, he should you know, let you uh, borrow his for old time's sake. I know.
1: <laughs> hey, it's good, you know well, I'm, I'm going to try and get some, my reasons for doing it is I want to get some video and everything else of it, you know, yeah. promotionally for myself sure. and for the, for the Vinyl Connection band, you know? That's right. I think it will be good.
0: Well, Phil... You know? please stay in touch and we'll, we'll continue to update our, our listeners uh, as to what you're up to and, and uh, this has been a really fun chat I, I've absolutely. learned a lot and it's, been, it, it's been a blast thanks for joining us today absolutely thank you so much Phil
1: oh you're welcome
0: alright take care bye 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 special thanks to Phil Kinsey for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast we'd also like to thank our correspondents Kim Riley Brian Pearson Scott Gross Max Zabe Mikhail Ingström Uwe Wright Scott Sheriff. Don Brightup, and Mats Uniland for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.